Hello everyone, I'm Ed Kemp and welcome to Series 2 of the Wide Open Road podcast, a podcast about career transition. Series 1 focused on athletes as they transition to life after sport and the sporting theme will continue in Series 2. However, a number of my guests will be from outside the professional sporting environment, but their stories will have brilliant parallels and learnings sports professionals and indeed people from all walks of life will be able to use in their own transition journeys. Today's guest is Harry Moffat, a former SAS team commander and registered psychologist. Harry works very closely with service men and women to assist with their transition to life after the military and his insights have extraordinary parallels to the transition journeys sports men and women go through. Harry spent almost 30 years in the military, the majority with the elite Special Air Service Regiment. To most of us, we know the regiment as the SAS. Harry was a team commander and specialist, having spent nearly 1,000 days on special operations globally. He has a Master of Psychology and now runs the Stoughton Group, a human performance consultancy. In 2008, he founded the Wanderers Education Program, the first program of its kind which provides in-service education support to soldiers in preparation for their transition. Please enjoy my conversation with Harry Moffat. Harry, it's terrific to have you along here today. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to speak a lot about uh, transition today. You've got amazing experiences in the military and we'll use those experiences for our guests to parallel that with the sporting side of things. But Harry, can you tell me just firstly, you know, how have the experiences that you've had in your own military journey helped inform you, help the individuals that you've worked with with regards to them transitioning to civilian life? Yeah, well, thanks for having us, Ed. Um, I guess first thing I would say is I've made a lot of mistakes and uh, I'm taking very close note of those mistakes as I've, as I've uh, finished in probably in the second half of my career and my mind started to turn to what I'd do post-career. But I was really helped uh, significantly by one of my great influences I guess beyond just a mentor but a man by the name of Gary Kingston who back in the early 90s when I first uh, joined the SAS um, Gary was uh, always impressing upon us that uh, you won't be here forever that you uh, you won't be uh, you won't be uh, in the SAS forever whether that's by design or by chance um, it's a high risk um, a job of course and he always used to say, you know, you need to be something else. You need to, to, to do something else beyond the gates. And that really resonated with me. He's a man I had a huge amount of, still do a huge amount of respect for. Uh, so I, about halfway through my career, I started um, uh, taking some other advice and, and uh, enrolled at university. I, I, for a long time, thought I could never do it, but um, there wasn't... Yeah, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be, and it's probably been set me on a on a uh, on a trajectory of of learning not only information and being educated, but also learning about you know other domains of life. So, I think the the biggest takeaway for me is that uh, you know you've got to you've got to do this yourself. Um, you've got to be motivated and proactive, and um, you know having mentors is a really important part. I don't think I would have moved as quickly or as uh, as efficiently, if I can say so, made the right, the, 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 the best decisions if I hadn't spoken with people like Gary Kingston and, and others around me at the time. Harry, you mentioned at, at the start of, of, of your answer that you, you made a lot of mistakes. Can you describe some of the mistakes that you made that looking back you thought, gee, I could have done that a bit differently, especially when it comes to uh, transitioning out of uh, out of the forces to civilian life? Because clearly, 
you had an opportunity to study whilst you were in the forces. And I'm also really interested to understand, you know, time commitment and how you managed to combine study with, you know, a, a career as an SAS soldier where I, I guess at times that you'll be deployed to certain situations without a lot of notice. Yeah, I guess the first assumption I made as a young SAS soldier, or the, the first mistake made, was to assume that um, I would live forever and would be in the job forever. Uh, and it's not before long people around you start to get hurt or indeed are killed uh, that you realise that, um, that that that's not the case. You know, we're all we're all human at the end of the day. Uh, if you're lucky enough, and that is a lot to do with luck to make it to the end. And I'm guessing in footy parlance, you have to make. 200 or plus games, you know, you probably got yourself uh, into a good position. But um, for the rest, uh, I think making some assumptions, it was probably the, 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 when I look back, some uh, some of the mistakes I made. Uh, I thought that, uh, you know, there wasn't anything worth living beyond the front gates of the barracks. Um, you know, over time I've met civilians and they're actually nice people so that, you know, they're getting outside the gate. Um, and I, I guess it's... That, those psychological comfort zones you kind of get into and and uh, and pursue. Um, in other domains of life, I've learned a lot about. I've made a lot of mistakes in leadership, how I've um, uh, treated people, and how I've uh, conducted my planning. And in a way, they've taught me a lot about transition too. So you know, as a leader, for example, I've you know tried, tried to be everything to everybody, and um, you know work long hours and not look after myself and as a result you uh, succumb to fatigue and, and stress and things and you behave in ways that are probably not optimal. So I think that comes into decision making and, and your approach to transition as well. Um, just maybe cutting yourself a little bit of slack at times and realising that you, you can't do all of those things. And trans, you know, balancing education, I, I, I actually find, and I've, I've, as you know, Ed, uh, we started a foundation a number of years ago around education, and I don't think I've ever heard one of the dozens, nearly nearly a hundred um, scholars that we've put through the program from um, from the SAS. I've never heard one of them say that education had a negative impact on my life. It, to a person, they've all said it's actually brought order, um, brought a different focus. Um, it's actually contributed to me being a better operator or a better a better soldier. So I think once I got over myself and said that it was a good idea to to choose psychology, which is my my choice, uh, it just opened up my mind and opened up my world so much. It, 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 it positively contributed to my experience and really it really brought my mind to what a, what I could be and another identity outside of the military. And if you think about the the study that you did and the and the learnings that you had outside of the military with this with your studies, did that help you be a better operative when you're actually in the SAS? And did it help you maybe see things slightly differently with respect to some of the things that you did over the course of your thirty year career in the in the forces? Yeah, one hundred percent. And the, the biggest thing, I, I guess, and now that I know this, after studying uh, psychology and, and particularly in teams environments is you inadvertently really uh, build this empathy or, or the, you know, the mental muscle that we all have um, um, of empathy where you start to see the world in not just a narrow focus of, of um, you know, soldiers, families and friends and, and the military, but you start to realise that uh, there's a lot of other people working super hard out in the world that are just having 
the same challenges as you are and they're the same people as you. So that, that kind of it really does broaden your horizons in terms of empathy. And with that comes a whole lot of other nuanced skills around communication and understanding. And, and they, they play out into the soldiering environment, particularly the SAS where a lot of our work is hearts and minds uh, negotiating or um, kind of diplomatic, more diplomatic roles, building partnerships and relationships. Um, that, that, that further um, broadening of your horizon and your community and network uh, absolutely um, helps with that. And it's also you have people challenging your beliefs and your values and, you know, as long as you get over yourself a little and let, that, let those questions um, wash over you, uh, that certainly doesn't help to develop another mental muscle, which is understanding that you don't know everything and there are better methods out there that can help you, whether it's in transition, whether it's in decision-making and leadership. I met some fantastic lifelong friends who taught me a different way to look at how to manage people and, and resources. So, yeah, I think I could probably gas on all day about that, Ed. Um, um, the, there's, the list goes on. I think it's just a real no-brainer for me and it doesn't have to be education. We'll talk about that later. That There are other vehicles that um, have something outside that identifies you can you know, build a different or other part of your identity around. Look, I think the identity piece is, is a fascinating comparison to to any professional sports people who, as they finish their career, if they haven't got something to, to go straight back into, they often fall into a trap of being the, you know, the former Hawthorne footballer or the former Australian Test cricketer rather than being, oh, the lawyer or the doctor or the bricklayer, the plumber who happen to play football. So there's that identity issue that causes massive problems as people are transitioning out of the professional sporting realm. One of the things that you mentioned was, if you like, the communication and understanding and the fact that, you know, you don't know everything and there's a whole lot of other environments and opportunities to learn outside of the military. Can you talk about, just very briefly, the the perception that you may have had going in to the the military and then coming out the other side where i suppose a bit like sport you're indoctrinated into a into a fairly focused and narrow area of life and then suddenly you're looking forward to transitioning out of that and there's a whole other world out there that you probably haven't really interacted with as as a normal citizen because you're so caught up in the things that you've been doing in the military yeah well of course it takes great uh, sacrifice and focus to get to that point, I guess, where you you, you, can, you are serving in the SAS and that's necessarily the case. It's the same for any, anything, I guess, any pursuit in, in life. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the younger... Well, some of the people I'm working with currently are pre-SAS um, selection, um, so... You know, we can have start having those discussions there. I think that's kind of where we have we start our discussions with the individuals that are coming into the unit. That uh, as quickly quickly as you can, you, you've got to orientate in the environment. And whilst mentors, you know, come back to that time and time again, they're they're, they're critically important. I think in that early part of your career, now we treat it as a more of a structured program where we try and match um, young men and women up to mentors that we think uh, would um, provide the best exposure at that point in their career. And then as time and maturity takes hold, um, individuals should start to reach out. I think the key there is that you can always bias people and behaviour and think that fit to the model that you want 
or need to be associated with, and that's that is the necessary in one case, but also having an awareness or building an awareness that that can make you very narrow over a long period of time. And just um, having that, we, we put the things in place to allow people to come out of that narrow view, which they obviously, the skill and abilities perspective from a skills perspective, you need to maintain. So yeah, so going moving from that narrow focus early in your career, where you're where you're all enthralled in in uh, building the skills and abilities that you need to do your job, uh, I think it's organisationally a responsibility for uh, for the senior people around. We call them the greybeards or the or the or the greyheads, uh, who are responsible for helping people make those first. Uh, navigating those first years of their career and making sure that there's always in the background or in the, in the front of their mind um, thinking about, you know, who their mentors are, what else they're doing. We, we have this concept in, a, in, in the community of not only special ops, but uh, I guess, you know, emergency first responders and others, this concept of the third thing or a third place and you know it would resonate with everyone uh so your first thing or your first place is your family your friends your home your immediate community your second thing uh generally speaking is your work your job your reputation and for those lucky enough that they're the same thing your passion um but for most of us our third thing is is about us as individuals to to expand and grow our character and identity and for me over that journey it's been education um i've always played in a, in a football club or a cricket club back home where there's no military influence and i can you know be held account for my own bullshit and some other things in life they're, they're they're kind of main the main thing so this this concept of the third thing just uh, starts the conversation early in someone's uh, career and you know you may hear people go what's your third thing what have you got on this weekend third thing and, and again to give us a lexicon on which to hang those discussions and keep them in the, uh, you know keep them warm in the conversation so to speak you mentioned that there's a pre-selection process for individuals who are looking to transition into the elite sas unit and i i know nothing about that selection other than i've heard it's pretty tough Listeners, just to give you an understanding of the environment we're in, we're in this isolation environment. We're on a Zoom call, and when I mentioned that it was pretty tough, Harry just had a very large grin on his face. If we And we, we sort of parallel that once again with sport, and clearly you know, AFL, when we use AFL as, a, as an example here, the draft process and, and the performance that people need to get to in all elite sport in order to get to the very, very top, I suspect would have a lot of similarities with getting to the elite SAS environment as a soldier. Harry, can you just explain very briefly the, the sort of the basics of the selection process that separates the wheat from the chaff when it comes to actually getting to that SAS unit? Uh, I'm not sure about the wheat from the chaff. I, I uh, must have just scraped through using that analogy. But uh, So very simply, uh, we... We take um, all comers, uh, from including um, civilians, although there's a, a different conversation in, in that. Uh, we generally uh, end up with about 100 to 150 starters after a pre-selection. Um, you know, you have to pre-select it on, based on some physical, psychological, intellectual and, and other metrics um, to make it to that last or that first 150. Uh, they arrive on a selection course in Perth. 
Uh, it's three weeks long. Uh, it's uh, very, very tough psychologically, physically, uh, socially. Uh, you know, everything's nothing's left to chance, and we generally end up uh, with about twenty individuals. So, some years we'll have original five hundred, other years we'll have a thousand applicants um, for that year, and uh, we end up with twenty, and then. Then they'll go on to 18 months of what we call reinforcement training, back-to-back courses, everything from you know, guns, medicine, um, communications, parachuting, water operations. There's a whole whole gamut. So 18 months of you know, arguably one of the toughest universities on the planet. And uh, at the end of that, if you are lucky enough, and again, there is a bit of luck to this, of course, um, you know, you, you, you've got to be up for the challenge as well, uh, you'll receive a beret and um, be accepted into the into the regiment. And, you know, it's not, you don't, not awarded a beret. I've never thought that you, you don't win a beret. You kind of, you're a steward. You're lucky enough and privileged enough to be handed the, the responsibility to wear it. And with that is a huge responsibility going back, you know, 100 years um, and more. And also, we're a global organisation of sorts, the SAS, uh, spanning three or four different countries. So there's this, um, there's this huge responsibility. We ask people never to forget that. It sounds like that there's a bit of a is there a is there a ceremony or is it more just a very low key, Harry, well done, shake your hand and here's your beret. Yeah, both of those. So we want to celebrate their crucible events in our life, and they you know there's this notion of of uh, community that we all understand and we all have our community with our family, friends, our society, our nation, whatever. But there's this there's this deeper notion of communitas, which is kind of the, 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 those cultural elements that you find inside not only elite organisations, but suburban cricket clubs where there's kind of a unwritten cultures and stories and, and artefacts. So that's important the, the, to transition from what you were into what you need to be next. And uh, I won't go into it, but there's just, uh, it's kind of it's a period of liminality where you're quite, not quite what you want to be and not quite what you were. Kind of, it's a surf zone, you're touching the ground, but you're in the water, you're not quite the ocean or on the beach. And, um, and those ceremonies uh, are very important to kind of crystallise that. So low-key ceremony with family and friends um, and uh, kind of shake the hand and and uh, a pat on the back, uh, a couple of beers, and then you, the next day you get up and got some uh, serious business to crack on with. And, and if you think about that with regards to the similarities with sport, I mean, a lot of professional sports people I've spoken to have said when you make a when you make the Australian Test team for the first time, or or the Sheffield Shield side from a state perspective, an AFL list, there's this enormous sense of the job's not done. They've they sort of made the first. Uh, step in what is a depending on how long they can stay in that system for quite a significant journey ahead of them and what was it like to obviously to get the beret and then suddenly you are you know on the list so to speak you could be caught up at any time to you know in in sport parlance participate play compete on the on the world stage I mean is that a is that something that you're prepared for during the course of that sort of intervening 18 month period or is there still a realization that once you're there, it's like holy moly, this is this is real now? Yeah, we've come a long way. When I joined, you just uh, had a few beers on the weekend, and on Monday you turned up to work, and you were down the bottom of the barrel again. You know, you'd fought for the last. You know, it takes literally two, maybe 
two years, maybe longer for, for you to train to the point where you're ready to, you've got the gumption and the arrogance almost to get, think you can pass the, the SAS selection course. But, uh, yeah, back in the day, you'd turn up on Monday and it was a, it was a tough place. It was, I used to refer to it as the, the prison yard you could go home from. You know, it was a, a tough, tough place. If you, you were accountable every second, every action you had. And it was, um, it was a, a critical environment in that, that, that sense. But it was, that was good. It bred tough. Um, men and women who, who who had a pretty serious job to do. We're a lot better at it these days. We probably put a bit more preparation into having uh, individuals have a, a somewhat of a softer landing, and we find that accelerates their their journey um, positively. And and whereas when I joined up, I probably spent two years in complete self doubt about whether I actually deserved to be there. Um, if I was ever going to get a, a, a full time name on the list, if you so to speak. And it probably wasn't until about two or three years after, in, about, in the mid-90s, that I actually felt like I belonged there. It took a long time for me to actually accept that. Uh, we're aware of that these days. Uh, one of my last jobs in the regiment was as a performance manager and we put some things in place so we can, uh, again, hold the hands or give a, provide a, a handrail for new operators so that they can we can accelerate those those inevitable feelings of self-doubt or uh, accelerate it to a point where they do feel like they belong. Of course, they do. That's, that's really important. It's part of the culture too. Well, I would have thought that, you know, if you've got a, I suppose, a, an individual who's just graduated and is now part of the unit versus someone who's been on the front line for a decade or more, I mean, what's the, and I'm going to get into the into the Wanderers education program shortly, but what sort of mentoring goes in, amongst amongst the troops with respect to a young person coming in and a like a you know like a 10-year veteran who's played 200 games versus a kid who's just been drafted and there's sort of parallels there. I mean is it a is it a yeah. relatively nurturing environment or is it I mean it sounds like when you were involved it was at, at the very start it was almost a bit more of a sink or swim sort of scenario whereas it might be a little bit different now yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. I, I guess um, the analogy I used is uh, the boxing analogy. We, we have a thing called Fight Club. Uh, it's run most weeks. It's it's undergone several evolutions over the decades. But um, it used to just be fighting. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, boxing back in the day. And I remember standing in the the so-called ring, um, and I looked up, and there was a you know a, a six foot six mid forties operator, you know, battle hardened operator, probably weighed about a dollar ten or more. And he uh, and here I was, you know, fighting just to keep up at eighty five kilos and uh, and 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 six foot and uh, he essentially just walked over and punched me out. <laughs> and he said, Welcome to the fucking unit, mate. You know, type of thing. Uh, so yeah, and, and until you could hold your own sort of that boxing ring, it was kind of that was the analogy, you know. And eventually, you learn to fight pretty bloody quickly. What size you are. Uh, so, you know, they, these days, yeah, so there's two two parts to the modern kind of approach now. One is that bottom-up support, so providing a network in which we can start the journey and the conversations with new guys and just normalise mentoring. You're not weak, you know, just because you're reaching out for a hand or have a question, um, you need to. And the other part, too, is just kind of softening the culture. And when I say softening, I mean softening as in, um, you know, uh, softening a, a good wine or, a, or from a food kind of context where we want to make it more palatable to the older, harder guard that the mentoring, they have a responsibility and an obligation 
to mentor because, you know, they don't own the unit, they don't own the culture, we don't own the brand, but the best thing they can do is to, is to facilitate that um, transition of information, you know, the, the stories, the artefacts, the culture, the unwritten laws and, and, and rules of, of uh, what it's like to be in, in that communitas, if you like, in that community, uh, that's, that's a great way to transfer that that knowledge and there is a real problem in, in a lot of intuitive ventures in life around tacit knowledge you know there's how do you it's like we, we know how to ride a bike or kick a footy but it's altogether another prospect to teach it to someone to explain it you know it's it's, it's it can be quite challenging so that's another way that top down from the senior operators down to the young ones and uh supported by good structures at the bottom there's no doubt that tacit knowledge comes in pretty handy and frustrating at times when I'm trying to teach the kids how to stack the dishwasher, Harry, I can tell you. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk about... We always do that, mate. I'm like, <laughs> my, my son's like a rug on valley. I mean, he's just can't get off the couch. <laughs> We've got four here and uh, they're all pretty good, but... Yeah, wouldn't mind. Wouldn't mind them stacking the dishwasher and uh, maybe rinsing the rinsing the dishes before they go in there. Another story. Every, another story, everybody. Let's talk I about. Have done it. My son's easy, good bloke. Don't I? <laughs> Let's talk about the wander the wanderers education program because you founded this, if you like, the in service education support for soldiers in preparation for transition. When does that normally kick in? Is it when a soldier comes? to the realisation that maybe their time's coming to an end or is it before that? Because we've always, uh, on this podcast, everybody that I've spoken with has said that the most important lesson they ever learned is they should have started to prepare for transition a lot earlier than they did. And yeah. whilst that there's all sorts of programs that sporting organisations and codes put in to help their employees, I guess, for which, which was what they are, to get prepared. It's up to them to actually do it. They can have all the programs they like, but they've got to engage in them. So what are the things that, are, that, that the Wanderers program has put in place to help soldiers transition, but, and also how long before they actually leave are, you, are they engaging in the program? Yes, I guess the underwriting principle is that transition is too late. If there was one message I could leave uh, around transition with every anyone is that uh, waiting wait, waiting till your transition is just too late, and uh, there's a lot of it cause a lot of complications, and, and uh, some of which we see play out in people who have recently transitioned and the struggles that they have. Uh, so, in that kind of principle, I guess is that you need to start thinking about it. There needs to be conversation um, in terms of the Wanderers Education Program. Um, that's kind of got uh, two parts to it. One is uh, we do have uh, an SOP or a standard operating procedure and application process that filters out, uh, or not filters out, filters in people who have reached a certain milestone in their careers. So we, we, we can't be giving away uh, education until you know, we put a lot of investment into our individuals. We need them to be, as I said, have that narrow focus, develop their skills and experience such that we can uh, rely on them. Um, 100%, which we, which we obviously we can. So we generally pitch it around uh, a minimum of uh, four to five years service uh, is when you can apply for it. Um, and there are extenuating circumstances if someone's been injured and can no longer fulfil their, 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 the operated role, because we have a lot of uh, people who are injured such that they, 
they, they can't go on. Uh, the other part to this is that the um, just just having these types of programs that have been bought into by the operators inside the unit, kind of more broadly into that you know that community CAS again, you know that kind of the broader SAS start to have people go home and and question what they're doing. You know, should they be on it or should they be doing something else to prepare for transition? Um, you know, in, in time uh, to come, well, that, that program, it's already, we're already seeing it kind of emerge and uh, qualities of the program. People are going and starting their own businesses and preparing for, for, for their own business prospects uh, when they leave uh, the unit. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's nothing for nothing. Uh, sorry, it's, just, it's not something for nothing. Uh, the other part, that, well, one of the other mechanisms we have is that we, uh, you have to pass the units to be uh, reimbursed for the cost of the program. So it's, um, there's a lot of support around for veterans. Um, sometimes I think too much, and I, I don't mean that pejoratively, but uh, the, we, what we want to do is, is you know, ask people to achieve excellence, continue to achieve excellence. And it kind of stops people from studying too much of raw focus and nail down. I mean, and if you think about the that sort of process that they go through, is that you, go, you walk into work on a Monday as an SAS soldier and you're based, I suspect, around the country at various facilities and I'm, I certainly am familiar with the Swanbourne one in, in Western Australia. I mean, are you, are you living there or are you... You're going to another. You're going home at the end of the day. Once you've sort of done your, you done your day's work. I mean, how does how does that generally work? And and how does that then tie back into this, the the education program where soldiers are starting to think about life after the military on the basis that four to five years service is probably let's call it eighty to hundred games in AFL parlance. So generally, when you've played that many games, you're probably a almost in the best 22, I suspect, certainly in the best 25, and you're playing most weeks. So what's the how do, what's a week like in the normal life of an of a SAS soldier and then which went then parallels into the, the Wanderers program? Yeah, uh, so I wish I could say there was a typical week. Um, I've got a saying that being away is like being at home and being at home is like being away. Sometimes, you know, you, you, you can spend eight, nine, ten months, a whole year away. Um, and over a number of years, you can be away for an average of, of, uh, of ten months a year very easily. Well, your bio says that there's uh, you spent over a, a thousand days on special operations around the world. So clearly you weren't living in Melbourne when you were doing that. <laughs> and I've got to just go, so my mates will be all over me like a rash. I didn't, uh, wasn't over a thousand, it was nearly a thousand. So we'll call that. <laughs> you know, that one of my mates will be somewhere and I'll know him. Well, fingers crossed, they, fingers crossed they listen because I'd, I'd love them to boost the listening audience here too, Harry. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, so there's no, no normal day. You, you live a, a relatively normal life in that, you know, everyone's got a house and family living and, and schools, uh, kids better down in school, et cetera, and that, that's your home base. But um, most deployments are of a nature of being four or six months long, up to six months long. Uh, when we come home, we're generally on other training exercises, uh, support to other nations. Um, so we'll go away for two weeks here and two weeks, two weeks there. So you end up spending far more less, far less time at home than you do away. There's no doubt about that. Um, an average day, if you are back, you're generally trying to take leave, clear clear leave and have time off and, and free your head. But in, inevitably, 
um, the regiment brings and has, has other ideas. So, uh, so it's very it's very difficult. The the study we've been fortunate. We actually blistered on to um, when we first started the program at UWA. So that the, the SA is, is is exclusively based in Perth. We don't move once you're posted there. That's that's it. Now that's quite good. It gives you certainty. We were there for across nearly thirty years. Yeah, when we first kicked off the program, UWA provided uh, elite sports pathways for for um, local AFL footballers and, and other elite sports people. And so when I went to first see Michelle Roberts, who was then the, the director of the program, Michelle uh, put forward the idea, you know, as, as because you're travelling so much, just we'll, we'll, we'll give you the same caveats, and that means you can do things online, which we now do as a matter of course. So it hasn't really impacted a lot of a lot of uh, downtime when you're away, so it gives you something else to focus on while you're away. Um, even even when you're posted overseas, uh, you can reach back into these communities in the universities and establish and develop those relationships. So, um, as I said, uh, no scholar has ever said to me that it was the worst thing they ever did. That's it's been hugely beneficial to them from that perspective. And do you, do you this sort of connection with UWA is it a is it a specific bachelor course I and mean, what are the sort of the things that that the program covers with regards to getting people prepared because I suspect that there would be an, an enormous amount of transferable skills and we speak about this a lot in the in the sporting side of things that that an SAS soldier or, or someone that's been in the military for an ex- extended period of time could bring to an organization um, whether it be elite performance whether it be strategy uh, whether it be coping with curveballs that get thrown at businesses all the time and let's face it Harry we're living through one right now with respect to the COVID-19 issue so there must be and and I know in in a lot of sports people that I speak to both in this podcast and outside of it is that sometimes they don't actually realise the transferable skills that they've got that they can take to another another profession which they can maybe go on and have have another elite career in so I mean are those the sorts of things that are being brought to the surface as they walk through this Wanderers program? Yeah, definitely, and not just with the Wanderers. There's other organisations that are helping, uh, providing, again, providing that handrail for, for veterans to, to go on and um, be whatever they, you know, like anyone, can be um, whatever you uh, aspire to be. But certainly the education program uh, allows them to start a lot sooner and start having those discussions with external Organisations about what are the what are the, the the tangible skills that they can bring, what are valuable, and even you know what, one of the one of the, the parts to the program is that we have um, you know at certain points during a, a soldier's career to go can go out and uh, uh, spend a week in an organisation just see and what it feels like and see how it operates, and it's not long before they go, wow, it's really not much different in its mechanistic kind of um, qualities. Uh, the business or the team or the organisation. It really does boil down to how you treat other people, how articulate or how um, unambiguous you are in communication and structuring and being organised, those types of things. So, again, building this kind of larger network or understanding about the uh, the world outside, that's what makes it important. And by the time you reach the end of your career, it's less of a surprise, it's less of a culture shock or, or a shock to the system because um, you've already been, I suppose... In another way, the common uh, similar to in the military, you've been inoculated through training and through exposure, or you've been uh, you've been immersed into that and used to it. So, 
Yeah, and look, there, there are tons of you know, veterans should take great heart uh, and sports people, everyone should take great heart that there's, you know, just being a human, it's just the environment that changes. You may need to upskill with certain technical skills, uh, but um, being a human and operating in teams, some pretty common threads across all domains of life that are transferable. You talk, we spoke about identity earlier in this conversation, and I imagine that one of the big issues that retired servicemen and women face is always being seen as the as the SAS guy or the the SAS woman or the military person as opposed to Harry Moffat, who's Harry Moffat. Um, and so you go to a barbecue and like in the sporting so oh, you know there's there's a retired test cricketer. And so the, people are always looking at, at them through that lens as opposed to the fact that you're now a psychologist. What are some of the things that, in your experience, have you know your your peers from the military really struggled with if they haven't gone through a Wanderers-type program and they haven't actually spent time thinking about what they're going to do when they finish? Yes, and a really good question. I, I think it's a phenomena that strikes all of us, really. Uh, I think the overarching... Uh, thing that occurred in people's minds is they just become anchored in a in a past to a degree where they that they, they feel that that was you know that the highlight of their life or that was the the peak of their their powers so to speak and it's difficult for them to move on and imagine that part of that former self in the future um, particularly when you've left an organisation and you've left the environment and the structures around you. It's hard to then, you know, here I am, I'm a soldier, but I'm a civilian. Where do I go to be a soldier? Well, the answer is you don't. <laughs> you can either go to the O or you probably go to the RSL and, and hang out for a little while. Um, but generally, I think people kind of get a little bit um, anchored in, in who they are. And this, is, this sense of identity is really important, uh, that we are not just... The identities that are uh, characterised by a bunch of activities and things were much more than that. And um, I guess that's what the, the, the education program and other things try to address is that we need to have this broader sense of ourselves. I see with um, veterans, very, very complicated. I see, and I see parallels with some of the sports, uh, some, of the, some of the work I've had or exposure I've had to the sports domain some people uh, will arrive at the end of their time um, and go through a transition, which I think is quite good. The, the, the Players Association, for example, uh, in the last number of years has really come a long way uh, as a, the military um, provision. Um, but I think in a lot of ways the, the, the frustrations that are experienced by the people working in there are similar and they are because we haven't had a broader um, view of the whole life cycle or life trajectory of the of the individuals, and kind of just get them at the end of their careers, and then have to kind of uh, help them navigate through to the next phase of their life. Whereas um, starting that conversation, as I've said a lot earlier, would be much more beneficial. I just like to say to the other the other the other area we're finding uh, realizing has great effect on people is is getting them into their own businesses, starting their own business. A lot of people who have taken the time and effort to reach you know so-called elite levels of performance in whatever domain are generally great self-starters self-motivated people of what you might call bricolage you know they can do you know, they can do lots of things with minimum resources and uh, they get shit done type of people 
um, high reliability, etc. So we, we think that that's another conversation that's worth having. I mean, that uh, you've got that on, on your bio about you're, you're good at getting shit done. And, you know, there's always that, that, that sort of comment that you always ask a busy person to get something done because they'll get on and do it. Um, this navigation and, and starting the conversation about getting prepared for life after the military, uh, I suspect that that is a pretty daunting task for someone to start thinking about. And I, and I know plenty of people, not only in the sporting world, but also uh, friends of mine who may be struggling in a particular career or they're going to work every day, they're on they're on autopilot almost, they're, they're doing it because they have to, they're not doing it because they love it or they, they want to do it. There must be an amazing opportunity as people go through the Wanderers program to really to start to identify the things that they enjoy outside of the military because there's no doubt that if you enjoy what you're doing and you turn that into a career, uh, it's going to be a hell of a lot more fun doing it and you're probably going to, and you're probably going to be better at it. So is there, there must be an amazing amount of conversations that go on to not only talk about the transferable skills that they have but also the things that they enjoy and then that can then slowly but surely be teased out to the point where a career might come out of the back of it. Yeah, 100%. And so while you were talking here, I just my mind cast back that back in the old days, which were good days nonetheless, uh, you didn't dare talk about things like education or not not didn't dare, that's overdramatic, but you, you wouldn't, you, you, the culture was such that it wasn't, you know, you didn't worry yourself or you weren't distracted with education or with outside pursuits. You know, you were regiment, unit mission focused and that's it you know that, that was all you were and you know that's at the time um was kind of education for example might have been seen as a bit soft or you know or having a pursuit say art or music outside the uh, the unit was seen as a little bit soft the old days hard culture soft if you went out and educated so what what's what does that mean from a objective point of view that means this is the way we do things around here not that way and so you never really mix the twain or you never really fell outside of the, the way we do things around here. Come forward to 2020 and in a lot of organisations, they realise now that you need to evolve the culture to a point where the way you do things around here includes education, includes discussion around transition, includes mentoring programs, etc., and includes the, the prospect that they're not soft. They're actually really smart and really clever as an organisation. So I guess the short point there is that we need, we have, and we need to continue um, evolving that discussion around how do we do things around here. And I guess as a, now as a, as a team or organisational psychologist, it's one of the things I think we really bring to teams and organisations. One of the benefits is, to, is this this, uh, this objective view. You know, you know what it feels like to be inside your your work, Ed, and and you know what it what it looks like, etc. But it's a pretty limited view if you're in the bottom of the valley. Uh, whereas if someone can come along and have a have a, a view from the top. Um, and and let you know or give you feedback as to what it, what it uh, might seem to feel like, etc. I think that's one thing we've done at the at the unit. Um, I think quite well over the last number of years. And I'm assuming that you know the this is probably very similar to a lot of organisations that as new people come in and maybe there's some more education that's been taken place 
doesn't necessarily mean the old way is always the best way. And I mean, we know that you know for as long as as long as people have been been alive, that that innovation and new ideas that may have at some point been seen as as almost uh, ridiculous have been taken to the point where they're now the norm. And then the next iteration is, well, someone will come up with another idea that will replace the one that was the norm. And so organisations and cultures continue to improve and develop in order to, I suppose, meet the requirements of the day. And you know, you've, you've great, great analogy with respect to the way that um, the SAS through the, the Wanderers program and other things that have occurred over the course of time has changed the way that they think about a whole range of issues, especially around transition. And that's that's completely consistent with all of the professional sports, which have now seen that there is a requirement and almost a uh, acknowledgement that when an individual walks into that sort of environment, they need to walk out better than when they walked in. Now, that hasn't, hasn't always been the case, and we've seen numerous examples of sportsmen and women over the years, and there was an extraordinarily raw um, documentary on, S- on SBS a couple of years ago about a number of very high-profile athletes who had suffered all sorts of depression, uh, issues with uh, alcohol, substance abuse, because they simply had not managed the transition um, as optimally as they could. And that's a, it was a very raw, difficult thing to watch that these uh, individuals who, for a lot of society, are put on pedestals and are seen to be absolutely elite at what they do, really struggling in, in day-to-day life, which is what most people go through every day. And, and look, a lot of us over the time do struggle anyway. So it's not a it's not a different sort of scenario. It's just the fact that these people have also grown up in the public eye for a long time uh, and they can't actually do anything without you know people knowing what's going on. Yeah, we're in danger, and it's a bit of, a, or a bit of a slippery slope. And again, I see this with veterans. If at at this point we're transitioning now, where we're getting better at dealing with the whole athletes or whole soldiers' life trajectory, their whole career, starting that conversation early, etc., and putting the proper support measures down uh, upstream, uh, you're in danger of creating um, people who become or doing more damage, is that right, or sustaining the, the, the potential for damage at least in developing a, a kind of a welfare mindset in cases where, you know, we'll help you, we'll help you, we'll help you, and then uh, and that, that has – what we need to do is, is to empower people to help themselves. And, you know, uh, where it's a, an athlete, an astronaut, a, 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 a emergency medicine operator, a, a military specialist, whatever – those people in their in their former careers have been fully enabled, fully uh, emotionally attached, fully uh, confident people for the, for the largest part um, of their careers, and then all of a sudden they they're, they're missing that. The last thing we need to be doing, I think, is to be creating this you know welfare uh, kind of mentality or, or risking uh, risking doing that. Let me said something earlier, mate, about um, you know it's a self evident fact that. Uh, we'll just evolve as humans and culture, and that kind of shifts us along. And that, you know, we, 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 as our knowledge increases, as our understanding of the world and ourselves increases, we will seek to change, or we'll be driven by uh, those evolutionary processes. And so, you know, it means for a lot of us older guys and girls um, who think we own the corner store and the new and the new is soft or or, um, or it's not uh, up to spec. 
to, for us to take pause and you hit on the thing that motivated me to, to think that was you were talking about leaving people better than we than we found them. Um, I often say to business people, and I think this goes to your point, uh, who I think sometimes do it atrociously, that the person that's walking out of your door is now an agent and a marketing agent for you. And the first question they'll be asked is, What's it like to work with Harry? And if there's a hesitation, they go, "Well, he's a bit of a bit of a prick," you know. <laughs> it's probably the worst marketing you could possibly get. But if you leave people leaving the organisation for whatever reason, they feel, they go, "You know what? I'm I'm disappointed. I'm going." But geez, they're, they're a great bunch of people, and I really enjoyed working for them. And if you come from that mindset or from that position, that that can help uh, help us kind of build. You have to put more focus back on how we treat people and how we leave them when they when they finish. You made an interesting point there about enabling people to see see things maybe a little bit differently and empowering them to go on and get on with other parts of their lives. I want to talk about Stoughton Group quickly before we finish, Harry. But just before we get on to that, which is Harry's business that he runs with his wife, um, can you talk a little bit about some of the some of the results, if you like, of the Wanderers program when it comes to yeah. what what graduates have gone on to do. Yeah, absolutely, mate. We've had um, – I'm, I'm really quite proud. You can probably um, sense a perk in my voice. Uh, some, some of the amazing things, we've, we've got individuals studying um, MBAs and, and, uh, and not just studying, completing them. They're, they're, they're hitting them out of the park. Uh, we've got uh, individuals who are studying – um, medicine, philosophy, psychology, uh, chemistry. Um, we've got other people doing um, vocational studies towards, you know, uh, building. One one uh, individual I'm, I'm aware of uh, wants to build his own house when he retires, so he's uh, he's studying that. Uh, so you know, there's a lot of one of the proud, one of the most memorable moments is one of the young fellas uh, when I was back in Perth a few years ago. Uh, applied for the program and wanted to finish year 12. And I said, you know, you don't have to do that. You know, you're a, you're a 40 odd year old bloke. You can, uh, we can put you into a, into a degree if you want. And he goes, no, I want to, I want to finish year 12. I never finished it. My mind's, my intellect and mind is anchored in year 12. I can't move past it. And to his credit, he went off and, and, um, and, and did that. So whole array of individuals who, uh, run their own businesses. Who are working in banks? Who are working in sports? Who are working in back in government? Yeah, there's a there's a whole array of individuals, and it's really it's uh, this year really starting to blossom, and have uh, we've had more applicants than we've ever had inside the unit uh, this year, and um, it's a, it's a great uh, success. I, uh, oh, if you don't mind, mate, I might just go back. Uh, I had another thought about this this sense of of leaving the place better than you than you find it. Um, I, I've talked before about um, this uh, this notion of the, I forget the guy's name, Brooks. He's a, he's a, a New Yorker um, columnist, I think, for, um, for the, the Washington Post, perhaps. And he wrote a book uh, talking about the notion of Adam 1 and Adam 2. And I'll, I'll be very brief with this, but... Adam One is uh, this person who thinks in turn, thinks of themselves in terms of their CV, their professional self, and Adam Two or Eve. Uh, the woman's um, analogy is Eve One and Eve Two, um, and Adam Two is this uh, our our emotional self and our character. Um, and the the exercise that he promotes, and I promote everyone listening to do this, is to 
uh, write down your Adam One self, your CV. What would you say about your on your CV about yourself that you would hand into a prospective employer or to impress someone? And then uh, go and write your eulogy. And what would you like people to have said about you? And it's a brilliant little exercise to run. Um, and then you ask the question: Which one would you prefer? To, or which one should you would you like to be more renowned for? You know, and overwhelmingly, the majority of people say, "Well, yeah, it's more important to you what people say." I was a good father, a good husband, a good mate, a good mother, a good um, grandma, whatever. Uh, rather than, you know, I'm good at you know spreadsheets and and leadership, whatever the case may be. But I think it's a, a very nice um, a little tool that uh, just came to mind when you were when you were chatting. Well, we're. I would say that all of us, from a professional perspective, are replaceable. Um, maybe from a personal family perspective, not so, when it comes to uh, looking after our families and our friends. Uh, so that's a great insight, Harry. I think uh, just before we wrap up, let's just talk a little bit about Stoughton Group because when we first met, we were ch- we, I remember we, we just had a, a, a broad conversation and then I I Googled Stoughton Group when I got back to the office um, after hours, of course, and uh, the the headline that really stuck out was humans over hardware. It's a brilliant tagline. Just explain, you know, briefly what, what Stoughton Group's all about. Yeah, well, thanks, mate. We're, we're uh, a Stoughton Group is a uh, human performance consultancy who focuses on individual team and organisational development with a, a bent for psychology or psychological um, tools and, and and approaches at this stage, and and it's it's a bit bigger. It's probably grown a little since we we spoke last, Ed. I'm, I'm happy to report that uh, we've uh, now got uh, four and, and potentially five people in the business, and we're we're growing, so uh, it's going quite well. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really kind of want to turn it into a, an advert for Stone, but I guess the the the, the thing behind humans are more important than hardware. Uh, it's a tagline borrowed from um, the five soft truths or the, the five special operations forces truths, uh, one of which is humans are more important than hardware. I'd, I'd encourage everyone to Google those five truths. They're, um, they're, they're, they're quite good. Uh, and it really places you know, – we, we, we believe that technology and, and uh, you know, this evolution, this accelerated evolution, you might argue, that we're undergoing, um, it leaves behind or it has human consequences clearly. And I think as we're already seeing the effects of technology, you won't go into the list of those things. However, it seems to me that everybody's focused on making life easier, um, you know, and making things easier and faster and so we don't have to go as far, etc. And it just strikes me that that's kind of not it's anathema to what humans are, you know, where humans are, uh, um, uh, have evolved to be, you know, working, struggling, fighting, and I mean fighting as in fighting for existence and building, you know, building a future. And I think that there will be a swing back to more human engagement. I, I, I sense that if there isn't already a bit of a backlash, um, you know, I, I see in the in the literature around COVID nineteen responses, you know, more time in nature, more time walking, and this kind of goes exactly to the point. Um, you know, I, I joke about at our board meetings with last, I joked about um, how we should come up with an app that tells you to get off this fucking app and go away, go and do something. Uh, you know, get off your bloody phones. Uh, there's enough with the apps already. <laughs> well, I think I think there needs to be an app that you know, after a certain amount of time. 
the phone just stops. And I mean, you, yeah. it's a great point you make about the fact that well, you, perfect, you perfect what you practice, don't you? If you if you sit on your phone practicing scrolling all day, you get bloody good at it, and you and then your mind starts to configure itself to reward getting on there because it feels good, and and, uh, and the, the, the the sellers know that. You know. Oh, look, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I look at what's occurred over the course of the last six or so weeks as we've gone into isolation mode is that the amount of people that are out you know, kicking the footy or, or walking their dogs and, and because we're not, you know, we're not madly rushing around, certainly from my perspective, to children's sport on Saturdays and Sundays, which I absolutely love and the kids love doing it. But it's actually given us a chance to take a, a little bit of a step back, I think, and it's going to be fascinating to see how many of us just get back on that treadmill when we do get back to some sort of normal life and we're just ramping ourselves back up again. It's going. I think we all know the answer to that question, Harry, but... It's been brilliant just spending time with family. Isn't it fantastic that when the, there is the, the, the pressure ratcheted up and we can all safely admit that we've all felt at times the, 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 the fog, the pressure, some more to a lesser or more degree, but isn't it fantastic to know that, that technology didn't save the day? Technology assisted us to maintain our industry and our industriousness, if you like, and, and continue but isn't it, isn't it great for people to see that the real important things are spending time with people, you know, the thing people most miss when you we've done it, we just conducted a survey with a couple of hundred employees across a bunch of businesses, uh, social interaction. That, that, that's the number, single one, and, and no shit, Harry. You know? <laughs> but I think if you're going to take anything away, there's, there's, your, there's a signal if you're a leader or an or a organisational head or CEO, there, there's your secret source uh, right there. You've been looking for it to increase your bottom line and productivity for years. Well, I'd put to you um, what's most important appears to be what we probably should have already known anyway. And that's the thing, to go to Stoughton's point, we, that's where we're preparing ourselves to play and, and learning how to, to play in that space where we can, uh, we can have a pure human uh, centric focus, uh, get, you know, bringing people together and sharing information and stories, and uh, and not around, you know, around more. I think more meaningful type engagements. Yeah, I mean that human connection. That's what I've missed the most with respect to my colleagues and friends and family. Can't see parents because they're interstate. Yeah. Uh, all of those sorts of things, which is we, we we probably don't appreciate it when we've got it and when it's been taken away, it gets brought back into sharp focus. Now, Harry, it's Sunday afternoon now. We started on Sunday morning, so we're going to wrap this up. But before we do, <laughs> we, before we do, and this is the, the same question that every guest gets at the end, tell me what advice you would give your 20-year-old self about transition and about the life you've led so far. Yeah, twenty-year-old self. The I guess I've already hinted at it, and I was lucky enough to meet the right person at the right time. Um, take your time looking for a, a, a quality mentor, uh, and listen to what they say. And that doesn't mean the first mentor; it might be the twentieth or, or the tenth. And don't be afraid to go to them. Don't be afraid to cold call them and say, "Hey, listen, I was wondering if we could have a chat." Um, and sit down with them. I was lucky, mate, and I, I guess my 24-year-old or 22-year-old self met uh, Gary Kingston 
um, and he really has defined and shaped my thinking. I think I've been a mostly had a mostly successful transition from that respect. Um, but that would be if back at twenty, I'd be saying be on the lookout for for um, for Gary Kingston or, or that that person. It's certainly what I'd say to a young man or woman coming through now. Um, you know, have some have some courage and 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 approach the people that that kind of really inspire you and truly inspire you in their character, not in their feats. It's not always the person who's done the most that's the most uh, beneficial in this respect. And uh, give them a call. I've never ever heard anyone say, "No, I don't want to be a mentor. Bugger off!" You know, <laughs> that's, uh, it's quite an honour and a privilege, actually. And, and in fact, being a mentor can put you on uh, notice as well. It, uh, it's very rewarding. So, I hope that answers your question, mate. Harry Moffat, <laughs> thanks very <laughs> much. That's brilliant, Harry. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, look forward to seeing you soon. But thanks very much. Thanks, Ed. Cheers, mate. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'd love to know what you think, so please email me at edward underscore kemp at bigpond.com if you'd like to share your thoughts, suggestions or recommendations with me. And if you happen to know a retired professional athlete who might like to share their story, please contact me as I'd love to speak with them. And if you do like what you hear, please subscribe to the Wide Open Road podcast and share this podcast with your friends. And remember, our next episode will be released in two weeks' time. Until then, all the best.